This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. In today's social distributed search-driven web, customers are finding their way to web content through an increasing number of distinct experiences. Yet when people arrive at most web pages, the experiences they get aren't optimized for this context. Luke Robluski discusses a set of best practices for web content page design that focuses on appropriate presentation of content, context, and calls to action. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So it occurred to me when uh, my flight was canceled for the third time by American Airlines that uh, I'm actually really crappy at naming talks. So content, page, design, best practices, not very sexy. Um, but hopefully the content within the content page design best practices talk will be a bit more exciting. I'm hearing a little reverb. Does anybody else hear that? Yeah? I'm going to try moving this down. You don't need to hear me that much. Better? Okay. As I was saying, so what I'm actually going to talk about under this unsexy name is uh, some best practices for dealing with content in today's social distributed short attention span theater that we call the web. So I have a little bit of a framework for thinking about content in this space. First I'm going to talk a little bit about what that space means, then I'll talk a bit about the framework, and then maybe throw out some suggestions for how we can do even better. So just to set some context, um, I've been working on the web for quite a while, started at NCSA where Mosaic came out, spent some time at eBay, and uh, now work over at Yahoo on a some of our larger properties, yahoo.com, myyahoo, fun things like that. So I come from a web app context, and you may have gotten these little bookmarks that are blank in your bags. That's for a book that I've been working on about the sexiest of all web design topics, forms. <laughs> so yeah, hub, hubba hubba. I'll let you fill in my blanks later. Um, that's the book title, filling in the blanks. What's wrong with you people? Jeez. So anyway, book's coming out pretty soon. And one thing that I wanted to kind of start this conversation out was when I started at NCSA back in like 1994, this is what our website looked like. And so, leaving the wonderful graphics aside for a second, this basically was a directory of a couple different services, a couple different content areas, and a couple different pages. And we were obsessed with how do these different things relate to each other in the context of the site, right? We went through a whole slew of processes and meetings and organizational timelines around trying to get to how does all this stuff interrelate? What's the relationship between page A and page B and section C and section D? And so we created all these elaborate things and spent the bulk of our time thinking about how content fits within the context of our site, right? 
And so that was kind of our focus. Um, we were optimizing for this particular situation. Last year at uh, IA Summit, Andrew Hinton put up a diagram that looked sort of like this, and he used it to illustrate what a closed system and an open system looks like. I have a similar-looking diagram, but for me, it's more about illustrating where are we optimizing and spending the bulk of our time designing content. Are we spending the bulk of our time thinking about how our content fits into these structures or how they fit into these structures, and where and how should we draw that balance, and what do those different implications mean? So on the one hand, I think it makes an awful lot of sense to spend time optimizing for how something fits together holistically within a website or web application. After all, the reason why it makes sense is because all of us sort of sit on product teams, we're responsible for sites, we're responsible for applications. So thinking about how a site fits together and why, very natural exercise, right? And so you spend all this time and all this meeting thinking about that. But is that at the expense of how our content and how our information actually fits into the context of the broader web as a whole? And what do I mean by the broader web as a whole? So if you drill down into this, thinking about and spending your time optimizing content within the structure of a site hierarchy or an application hierarchy might mean trying to figure out how you can access it from something like a home page, which only your clients care about. Or it might be something, um, might be time spent trying to think about what are the categories, the subcategories that are lateral or the kids underlying where a particular piece of content sits. So there's relationships to hubs, parents, children, so on and so forth. But this piece of content also exists in the context of the web ecosystem. Uh, Tom Chi, the really sharp guy over at Yahoo, has a couple names for some of these new emerging types of systems online, and I have uh, blatantly ripped those off from him in the context of this presentation. But some of these things like display surfaces, content creators, content aggregators, all these things have a context of their own. They have a situation that people find themselves in where they encounter pointers to content, and then people come from that situation, from these content aggregators, from these display services from search, into the pages that we use to display the stuff that people are actually looking for. So what do I mean in detail by this? I'll drill down into each one of these for a second. Well, actually, before I do that, why, do we, why should we care? Why should we spend time thinking about this context versus this context? And how much time should we spend thinking about how a piece of content lives in this versus how a piece of content lives in this? Well, if you take a look at some of the statistics, these are statistics from my particular site in terms of traffic. 95% of the traffic that comes to my little site on the web is coming from these channels. 5% of the traffic is recirculated through my site. So that should perk up your ears entirely. Now, there are different situations here. Very large online brands and places where people sort of go by default, known brands and um, URLs that are sort of imprinted in your head, might see a bit of a different ratio. They might see something like, you know, 15% is this organic coming from the web ecosystem traffic, and 85% is actually coming from recycling within a site or a series of sites or what have you. But even that's a pretty interesting um, skew. And granted, I think this is a much rarer case than that one above. I think the, the sites that have this sort of cachet, this um, capacity to recycle you and this capacity to have you uh, so associated with the brand that you go directly to it and don't come through it organically, there's very few things like that. And even if you are one of those entities, oh, actually, your situation probably falls somewhere in between here, but even if you are one of those entities on the bottom or the lower end of this range, 
chances are you probably want to move higher up, this, up, the, up the range, right? So you want more of this web ecosystem traffic. This is why people spend so much money on SEO. This is why people spend so much time and money spamming things like Delicious and Dig and what have you, because there's a lot of value to moving up this chain, right? The more you can sort of get organic and naturally occurring traffic coming to your content, the less you have to rely on things internally. So moving up this chain leads us to think, hey, maybe we should be focusing a bit more about how our content fits into the ecosystem. And so these particular experiences I called out with the help of Tom Chi from communication, display service, content creator, content aggregator, search. What are these things? Um, what are these different contexts and these situations that we find ourselves in? And what's the situation that people find themselves in when they encounter your content in these places? So a little while ago, um, as part of the book, I wrote an article about web form design. And I posted it up on my site. And a number of interesting things started to happen that got me thinking about this issue. So a lot of the most popular applications on the internet and just on the web in general are associated with communication. So here we have a little chat window, right? There's currently 385 million in instant messenger users as of December 2007, according to Comscore. So close to 400 million people communicating via instant messenger chat in the world. That's a heck of a lot of people. And these people are basically talking amongst themselves and sharing things directly with individuals. So my buddy Andrew says, you there? I say, yep. He says, check this out. I say, hmm, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But what I got here is I got a direct recommendation from an individual that knows me to go and check out a piece of content. And you know, there's 400 million people talking on Instant Messenger, so these sorts of connections are happening an awful lot. And the relevancy you get from an individual saying, hey, you should check this out, versus you finding it in a search engine or you stumbling it ac across it somewhere else, chances are that recommendation is going to be really darn good. Anybody have an inbox that looks like this? Yeah. <laughs> this is like a third of mine, if even. But 564 million people online using online mail clients. And if you extract that out to um, all mail clients, email is a big way for people to communicate and share stuff. So you're talking about you know close to a billion or more, probably more than a billion people communicating via email. And again, in the sea of clutter, in comes a note from my friend Bob that says, hey, check this thing out, right? He's making a personal recommendation to a piece of content for me. Another communication channel, people might Twitter things. I don't know if anybody out here Twitters, but this is again kind of a, uh, a little online burst of message. And some of the situations that you find yourself in, you've got three chats going on, you're in your inbox, You've got like two seconds to check your Twitter feed, and up comes these content recommendations. So you're in a hurry, you've got lots of things going on, and somebody says, hey, check out a piece of content. I found this one kind of interesting, too. This was an archive of a discussion list called um, the Interaction Design Association list. So that's a mailing list, which then gets archived online, and people can find discussions about things like um, forms, and then they can find... Um, things in the context of a conversation. So this is someone. This is something someone took the time to actually share, talk about, and communicate, and that's been archived on the interwebs. So in addition to communication channels, sometimes communication is a bit less direct. It's not you getting an email or instant message from somebody. Sometimes um, people are posting things on what uh, we're terming here display surfaces. So this is Yahoo Mash, or, or yeah, Yahoo Mash, where I can post links, images, videos, etc. Anything that I find interesting, anything that defines me. Um, and so up here I posted a link that says, hey, check out this article. 
And this is kind of a self-expression system, right? I'm basically putting my stuff, my photos, my slides, my books, my friends up here and telling everybody, hey, this is something I care about. Um, similarly, in the context of a large social network like Facebook, people can share things with their social graph, with the people that they're connected to and say, hey, um, here's something that I think, and sometimes people share this sort of stuff to be the first one to do it, or so they're kind of um, at the bleeding edge of their friends. Sort of display services. Content creation sites, so these are places where you can actually generate unique, original content, probably the most popular of which are blogging platforms, or wiki platforms, or online video editors. But anyway, here people can generate content in a, a lot of people decided to blog about this particular article, right? So this is a totally separate site. Someone blogs about this. Hey, there's this article. You guys should check it out. Totally outside of my control what they're saying, how they're doing it. In fact, lots of people can, because the barriers to content creation are so low right now, you can basically install WordPress, movable type, get blog or whatever. Costs you basically nothing to get a publishing channel up and running. Lots of people are doing it. And they're doing it around the world. So what is that? French in there somewhere? I don't even know what the one down below there is. Maybe that's Norwegian or something. I have no clue. Swedish. There you go. Swedish people. So people across the world are choosing to publish and talk about these things. And again, totally out of my control. So what happens when somebody comes from one of these publishing channels to my snippet of content on the web? What's the experience they get there? Another type of uh, experience that's out there is content aggregators. So this is a chunk out of uh, My Yahoo, which is the world's largest RSS reader, somewhere around uh, 50 million users as of January 2008. And, you know, these are people tracking pieces of information that they're interested in. So there's my blog up there, there's a bunch of other things, so on and so forth. Another content aggregator, which I'm sure you guys are all familiar with, is Delicious. And so here people are saving URLs, dropping little notes about what they think about those URLs. And you can access these things through all sorts of different facets, like popularity, timeliness, tags, um, user, what have you. Another one that's out there is uh, Dig, which is a social news experience I'm sure you guys also know about. But what happens when something on your site, a piece of content on your site, spikes up in Dig, hits the front page, and all of a sudden you get a fire hose of traffic? Everybody bounce off of it? Are your pages designed with that context in mind? Another huge fire hose of traffic that uh, we opened up recently is yahoo.com. So through a, yeah, the Yahoo Buzz site, we've actually allowed any external site that's part of that system to pop into that channel. Um, and then potentially the most important content aggregator out there, which it has a special name, is search. Right, right now there's 9.9 .9 billion searches in um, February 2008. It's a heck of a lot of volume. Um, and you know, Search engines, the average query length within a search engine is 2.5 words. Within 2.5 words, people are trying to get exactly what they want. The, the efficiency within a search engine results page is, is spectacular. The amount of time you spend actually looking at a click determines whether or not you click it. I'll pull some stats on that later. And uh, there's just this huge battle for who shows up where because the first three to five results are so powerful and drive so much volume. But efficiency sort of rules the day here. You're, running these queries, you're in, you're out, you're pogo sticking back and forth and you're trying to get an answer to something. Now search engines will probably evolve a little bit. Uh, this is one of the things that's happening on Yahoo search and when you actually run queries, we show you concepts related to those queries extracted from what's happening in the results. So you can get more granular, drive deeper into the tail with your queries. So 
without going too much further into it, people are coming from lots of different contexts to your content. What happens when they actually get there, right? People are coming from where they're communicating and making direct personal recommendations. They're coming from where places, places where they're putting things that define themselves on display. They're coming from places where they're creating their own content and, and um, voicing their own ideas. They're coming from places where content is being saved, voted, ranked, or discussed in aggregation. And they're coming from short blurbs of text in search of an answer. So all this leads to short attention span theater, and it all ends up in the same place, which at first glance doesn't look very interesting at all, right? This is my page that all these different sources are pointing to. This is just a basic, simple content page about something uh, on web forms. But what actually is underlying this, I think, is kind of interesting from a framework perspective. So there's a deliberate breakdown of what types of things are on this page, and the three pieces are the content, related calls to action, and context. So within here, there's a number of considerations that I sort of take into account drilling down to this. The content is the primary focus of the page. It's, the entire, it's all those promises that people are making across the web. Somehow this page has to fulfill those quickly and easily. So people are recommending things, and when people are recommending things, either in a communication channel, an aggregation channel, or a content creation channel, Related things matter because you're making a very specific recommendation to somebody. Chances are they're interested in that topic area. Uh, when people are, it's also actually, I'm not going to get into the details just now. I'll do that here. So let's drill into each of these, starting with content. So the the primary thing that I want to talk to when I think about content in this framework is making good on the promises that people that you or others are making across the web, and you can do that through. Um, thinking about the structure of the links coming into your system and the page titles that you bring into it, devoting appropriate screen real estate, hierarchy, and scannability. People are coming, and they have expectations. How can we actually meet those? So this is an example of just some of the promises that are being made about this content on the web. Here's a search result. Here's Dig. Here's a Delicious. Here's somebody's blog. So expectations are set in these different situations for people about what they're going to get when they come to the page, right? I know this, this one seems a little bit basic, but thinking through, all these people are saying primary and secondary actions in web forms. How did they get that? Well, they got it because I made sure that the title of my page and the title of my HTML page matched. Super simple thing, but a lot of times it's wrong. Now let's look at some stuff that's theoretically also simple, but doesn't happen. So if I'm in search engine, I'm looking for Chicago Olympics, I get this little thing, Chicago Olympics bid, grab the first link that happens in a search engine, and this is what pops up. Doesn't seem too interesting, right? But if you actually to do a little bit of an analysis on it, and what I did, I just broke up the quadrants on a 1024 by 7068 screen, and just saw how much of it is actually devoted to the content. I just got promised and how much of it is dedicated to essentially stuff that has nothing to do with it. 24% of the page is about the content that I want. And it gets significantly worse when you look at the whole page. Right? So the overhead of thinking about this piece of content in the structure of a site and a site hierarchy and what matters in that situation is impairing this broader channel of the web ecosystem, right? So there's a notorious efficient, the, the, as I mentioned before, this is coming from a search engine. There's a huge call and decide and scan and, and efficiency 
behavior going on in the context of a web search results page, and then people come here, and all that efficiency and all those expectations and getting the quick answer and getting the right answer is all out the door because only 24% of the page is devoted to um, screen reel or to the actual content. Now, an example of um, it being done a little bit better can be seen here on the New York Times. This is um, a story about the recent Virginia Tech strategy, and um, if you take a look at how much content is actually devoted to on this page, whoops, right? It's something more like 90% of the page goes to the actual content. So big difference. And you know, people coming from a search engine are looking for a specific answer, a specific something. So give it to them as the dominant element on the page. A lot of other studies we've seen, or I've seen, indicate that when you make good on the promise of content, people welcome related calls to action. If you don't make good on the promise of content, people are out of there. So make sure you make good on it. So, Here's a little example of how we can actually fix things. This is uh, Yahoo Answers, or at least it used to be Yahoo Answers. And there's a lot of traffic coming to Yahoo Answers for um, resolved questions. This is a system where people ask each other questions, a lot of other people answer them, then they vote on the best answer. So there's a lot of knowledge generated here about what's a good answer. So here, how long do hair highlights last? It's like 5% of the page. Right? Someone coming here from a search engine gets obliterated by all these different non-relevant calls to action, categories, participation things. I mean, site overhead, right? This is all overhead relative to that question. So in the redesign of this, the situation is switched a bit. Um, instead, the, fat, the vast majority of the content or of the page is de dedicated to the content. There's the minimum amount of contents necessary to let you know where you are, and then there's a whole bunch of interesting related calls to action information. And I'll touch on a little bit later about why this stuff's bolded, but there's different ways that you can call out um, things that are actually very relevant to where you are. So this redesign puts the actual content and the context front and center, as opposed to here. Right? So that's step, step one, is making sure you got expectation set with simple things like titles and links. Step two is making sure you're pricing the appropriate weight on delivering on the goods that everybody's getting promised everywhere. Step three is thinking about the overall hierarchy of the page. So the, if you're, unless you're on a screen reader, the web is a highly visually interpreted medium, right? People, when they hit a web page, they jump between areas of visual interest to try and make sense of what the heck they're looking at. So there's an opportunity to leverage the natural movement of the eye between areas of visual interest to explain to people what the heck this page is, what it does to them, and why they should matter. And so here you have some eye tracking data that actually shows people jumping through a page on Squidoo and trying to make sense of what's going on. And if I back this up a second, like so are they reading anything here? Maybe they read something there. Nope. Okay, maybe they read that title. No, they're going to see that blank. Oh, hey, look at this picture. Woo! Oh, no, group. No, here we go. Hey, a picture. I like pictures. What's this? Nope, don't care. Oh, back. Here we go. Picture again. Maybe I'm reading. No, I'm not. Nope. Okay, picture. Here we go. Oh, actually, I might have read that sentence. Did I? Ah, so finally doing a little bit of reading for a split second. Now, don't care, don't care. Picture, don't care, don't care. Add, don't care, don't care. Picture, don't care. Big gray area. Woo, big gray area, woo, big gray area. Picture, 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 woo. So this is how people are parsing information, right? They're looking around for stuff, seeing if it has anything to do with what they care about. If not, they're out of there in like milliseconds. 
This is a situation people are coming to your page and it's actually even worse when they're coming from places like search engines or content aggregators or whatever. They're looking for very specific, very related things. Now, depending on how you lay out the visual hierarchy of the page, what do you look at first here? Right? Where's your eye even going? Right? Me personally, I gravitate to the tire wax, <laughs> hormones, and dental floss. That tends to be how I shop. But other people, you know, their, their eyes are just bouncing all over this thing. So this is kind of a homepage setting of that. But you can also see it happening on a content page. Where the heck is the story here? Right? Oh, there it is. Hey, little corner. So people's expectations are set, and this is doing absolutely nothing to meet those expectations. No clear visual hierarchy. Whereas contrast this to the CNN example, right? Big, clear, prominent element for the actual title of the thing, let you know where you are, draws you into the attention of the article, ample white space to let you parse that, actions are sort of toned down, context is the minimum amount necessary, and there's an unfortunate occurrence of an ad, but what can you do? It's not too intrusive. Now, another reason to care about making good on content and hierarchy, I know some of these things sound like, oh yeah, of course we should make the content big. Well then, why do 90% of the pages with content on the web suck? Um, but a lot of the eye-tracking data and the information that I've seen is that people actually don't read the whole piece of content. You're lucky if people get through 75% of it. People will read the very beginning of it, maybe about 25%, then they'll scan the rest, and then they'll start looking around, seeing if anything related to what they care about at that moment in time is available. If it's not, they're out of there, right? So how can you take advantage of that behavior? And there's some data that backs some of this stuff up. There was a study in 2006 where across uh, 650,000 different URIs, 25% of all those documents were displayed for less than four seconds. 52% of them were displayed for less than 10 seconds. And the peak value for how long? The kind of max over here is two to three seconds. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, done. Okay, so where are you going to spend that time when people are on the site? So make it short and sweet. This is a nice little site um, that uh, Hoy and uh, Liz Danzico worked on. A brief message, 200 words or less. Probably something I can actually grok through and read. Now, this might seem like um, a travesty out at first, but I think it's actually potentially really exciting. When you go to CNN, story highlights. Four bullet points, go to the next thing. Right? In the short attention span theater, that is the web, I think things like this have a pretty interesting bit of potential. There was a study done like a year and a half ago by the Nielsen Norman Group that showed when... Um, Pages, when articles were broken up and cut more into bullet points and subheadings and stuff, people got through them 34% uh, faster, or no, I'm sorry, 12% faster and had 34% higher comprehension. So though this seems kind of evil at first, by cutting things down and making things more concise and accurate, you're actually getting people to understand information more and comprehend information more. So scanning, bullet points, white space, all these things help comprehension. And it's, it's just interesting to me, like, Story highlights. Here's the four things I got to read, and then I'm off to something else. It's a great way to keep people engaged in this experience when they're kind of in and out of here. It could be even stronger if the next article had something to do with what the heck I'm looking at, right? Something very related. But that's another question. So overall, when we talk about content, best practices are people are making promises. Others are making promises for you. You're making promises. Make good on them through um, the page titles, the 
the the prioritization of content, the overall visual hierarchy, and these opportunities for further engagement happen when you actually act in short, concise, and scannable ways. So that was content. Um, what about related? What am I talking about here? As I said before, in a lot of these contexts, things are being recommended to you, either by a search engine, a direct communication channel, or an aggregator. So there's a specific area that you are being driven towards, chances are that's what's top of mind for you right at that moment, right? You have a particular goal, you have a set of objectives. So related links really matter. And because people are switching contents, contexts so quickly, chances are they're not gonna look at a lot of different options when they get to your content area. So toning down what actually matters makes a big difference. Um, the other thing that's important is, another kind of higher level point, when you just meet somebody, you don't have to tell them everything about yourself. You just have to tell them what's relevant at that point in time. So let's see these things in action. Uh, the Chicago Tribune redesigned their page, and they, you know, they put a little bit more focus on the content, but they didn't really change up the relevance of the information. And in particular, I wanted to kind of call this out as spare us your sitemap. I don't need to see a sitemap of your entire thing on every single page. It, chances are it doesn't matter to me at all 90% of the time, if not 95% of the time. What happens in most... Um, typical websites, this is just an average weblog chart. You got some popular pages or sections and then a whole bunch of crap nobody ever looks at, right? And when it comes time to design the page, that's what it looks like. We take every single thing, we layer it on there and make sure everybody knows about everything, always, right? <laughs> Access everything, always. Now, when you actually dig in, it turns out there's some really great relationships between maybe something that's popular and a few things that aren't very popular. There's relationships between the content that matter. So, as I mentioned before, when things are being recommended to you, relationships matter. And so here, can we just pull out the four things that matter, make those accessible, maybe even embed them within the content and make that stuff pop? So here's this access to what matters now as opposed to access to everything always. Here's an example from some news stories on the BBC site. It doesn't look very interesting at first, but um, when you actually jump into these links, let's say we choose to check out Bad Baghdad under anniversary curfew. I guess they celebrate curfews there. It's like we celebrate wedding anniversaries. So here's Baghdad under anniversary curfew. But look at this stuff on the right. Key stories in Iraq, features and analysis, audio and video about the situation there, background about what's going on. Very relevant, very, very reliable stuff. Then if I choose instead to check out what's going on with France and Colombia, I get a whole bunch of different things. Here's the background of what's going on in there. Here's profiles of the different people involved. Here's features and analysis right in that area, right? All this stuff is prioritized to exactly that specific task. Maybe I change my mind and I care about sport. What's going on with Liverpool? Well, voila, all this stuff is about you're talking about the two different teams, uh, the situation for the games, all this stuff. And by the way, the, the hierarchy has changed to be all about sports, right? In fact, all about European football sports. That's a lot of very rele relevant stuff for me. And they don't stop there. When you actually dig into the real chunk of content, there's related pieces of information within, right? Videos about this, um, debates. People love to talk about sports. So what could be more relevant to somebody in the context of an article than a discussion about sports? Now, you don't have to include um, only links to different pieces of information. You can also call out related actions. So here, an article in the New York Times about uh, some of the things that are going on 
in the political situation in the U.S., and the primary relevant call to action is, hey, keep up to date on politics. Sign up. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, related content, no problem. I got plenty of related content. You want to talk children's health? I got children's health home. I got children's health guide. I got children's health ages. I got a slider that allows you to toggle the ages of the children's health. I got children's top health topics. I got parenting videos. I got a guy with a blog who you can ask. I got baby talk videos. I got top topics. I got, you know, local hospitals in there. Children's health, children's health, children's health, children's health, children's health, children's health, children's health. When people are quickly changing context in this broader web ecosystem, they're not going to pursue all the choices you give them, right? This is that point I made earlier. You don't need to tell somebody everything about yourself the first time you meet them, and they're only hanging out for two seconds. So here I kind of point to some of the uh, work of Barry Schwartz in his uh, book, The Paradox of Choice, and there's two particular things that he talks about when people are faced with too many choices. When people are faced with a higher number of options, less people end up making a choice. He cites two studies, uh, or a few studies. In speed dating, you're much more likely to select a match with six dates versus ten. Once you get to ten, you're less likely to pick anybody. Uh, when a grocery store shows six different flavors of jam versus 24 flavors of jam as a sampling platter, when they show 24 flavors, one-tenth as many people actually buy jam. Everybody else doesn't decide on anything. Um, so that's decision paralysis. Give people too many choices, they're not going to pick anything. Decision quality. When presented with too many options, people aren't going to like think about it and figure out. The, they're going to pick the simplest answer. Um, Schwartz cites this example of 401ks. The simplest answer in a 401k is not to pick any investments at all, which also happens to be the worst option. Um, but every time somebody adds 10 mutual funds to a 401k, participation drops 2%. Add 10 more choices, 2% people don't pick anything. And what does the simplest choice on the web mean? The back button. Oh, I'm not going to take the time to figure out what I need here. Now, you could go to the extreme, googly style of a content page, which I actually think, personally, it would be nice if the web was a little more clean like this. Content, primary focus, not too long. Good level of conciseness, some related links, and just a little bit of context. It's an AP News story hosted by Google. Now, the other reason... You don't want to overwhelm people with too many options. Is people are really darn good at tuning things out that they don't care about. See that picture right there? That picture has absolutely nothing to do with the story. Nobody looks at it. Pretty easy. Here's a video gaming site where they have a review of this latest game. That area for ratings looks exactly like an ad. Gone. Not even looking at it. Despite the fact that that's where they have their review, that's where you can post a review, that's where you can start chatting about it, so on and so forth. Tune it out. Um, and you can sort of start to see this stuff in just eye tracking in general. So here's a simple content page, eye tracking chart. Nobody's looking at the banner. <laughs> Look at that. The, the way you can parse these eye tracking charts is where it's red, most looking, yellow, a little less looking, green, a lot less looking. Everybody's just focusing on the stuff they actually care about, and then they're in there. And you can actually see how people trail off, right? Only 75% of, or 75 people are not going to finish that entire story. So what that gets us to thinking about is, well, how do we get people to actually notice some of these related calls to action? We know that they're useful. We know that we should have them there. When I laid this out on my site, I had context-related content, but then some other ones I showed they had on the right, some of them had on the left. What should we do here? Um, it's just sort of a little 
composite image of eye tracking information I've seen. I personally tend to favor sticking it on the left for two reasons, and I'll talk about whether it's even a right-left choice in a second. But sticking on the left, that's where navigation traditionally goes in most people's um, minds, and it does tend to get a little bit more heat in terms of viewing than the thing on the right. The thing on the right, a lot of people just assume is ads and jump out of there. Now, why, why does that matter? This is work done on search results pages, but when you actually look at what people look at on search pages versus what they click on, if the viewing of a link falls from seen it 80% to seen it 60%, the probability that they actually click on it goes down by 50%. So the duh thing there is if you don't see it, you won't click it. So therefore, we should care a little bit about making sure that people at least see we have these great related things on our content pages. And it doesn't mean necessarily top or bottom or top or left or right. This is an example from a site called Hulu where you've got a video playing. By the way, this is a pretty funny clip. Anybody seen Olympia Restaurant? Chase Baga, Chase Baga, yeah? Okay. It's an old legend. Pepsi, Pepsi, yeah, there you go. But anyway, down here you've got really related clips. These are little clips from Saturday Night Live that are the most popular today. This is one of the most popular clips today. Here's a few other ones. You can jump right into it. It's pretty, uh, pretty useful layout. Contrast this to what YouTube's done lately with their page. Um, they, they were going kind of in a good direction for a bit and calling out related things. Now when I look at this, I don't even know what I should watch next or why, right? Like Jennifer Connelly and Charity, Clean Water Africa. What the heck do I watch here? Um, so going back to the visual hierarchy thing, if you do have good related links and stuff, use hierarchy to get them noticed. Here, I can't even tell, right? There's actually some pretty decent related links on this content page. So sitemap on every page, not very useful. Instead, relationships between content can be surfaced and made visible. Not throwing every single related thing you have in your long tail of content, but really pulling out the things that matter and limiting the number of choices. And then thinking through the presentation of them helps a lot. So we talked about the content portion of things, making good on promises with links, devoted real estate, hierarchy, scannable content. We talked about related, appropriate calls to action, um, what's this thing with context? So context is really a quick overview of where you are and what you can do there. And setting context really does not require a lot of pixel space. You really have to only answer two questions. Whose site is this and what can I do there? And let's use the minimum amount of space to actually get that done. So here's three examples of just kind of high-level headers. Whose site is this? What's going on there? Pretty minimalist. The other thing about setting context is because people are jumping through all these different channels in the web ecosystem and coming to your site, and if you're like me, they're doing that 95% of the time, you've got to treat the context of your page as a first impression. You basically have to make people very quickly feel okay getting content from you, right? How do you very quickly make people feel okay that the content you're giving them instills trust? Um, I, I, this is probably research that a lot of you are familiar with, but leveraging the visual presentation of your information to instill trust goes a long way. So who do you trust? These guys that give you like 1% of their screen real estate for content? And by the way, this is an ad. Only this is actually the story. Or these guys that really say, hey, you know, we care enough about the story to make it front and center. We care enough about the quality of the content that we're going to make the quality of the page seem professional, right? So treating context as a first impression helps build credibility. And using a professional presentation helps establish that. Now, 
those are kind of, again, simple examples of context setting, just the minimum amount necessary, what setting are you on, what can you do there, professional presentation. But I think context can get even more interesting. The next few things here are really more experiments, but I trust that you guys can take these to the next level. So a little while back, John Battelle did an experiment by tracking the, by changing his pages of content based on what somebody searched for to get there. So he basically took this site, this, this page, Gates at SAS live blogging, and if somebody came from a Google query, bless you, that said Sea uh, Dragon, he added this big thing on the top. It says, hey, I noticed you were searching for Sea Dragon. Here's a list of related articles to your keywords. Good idea, bad implementation, potentially. Are there other ways to do this? Let's say somebody was searching for a visual organization, and I pop up at the top. What are some ways I can alter my landing page based on the fact that I know the thing the person was looking at before he, got to, he or she got to my page was a Google search results page for the term visual organization or a Yahoo search results page for the term visual organization? Well, maybe what I could do is take my regular article and just do a quick little search of my index and pull out visual organization articles, right? I know which things in my site are related to visual organization. Maybe I can just pop a few of those up there and um, give people an opportunity to see that and then also keep them here so their eye kind of sees that a little bit and then jumps in and says, hey, there's some visual organization articles in there. Or maybe I can go even further and really call it out. Say, hey, you came here for visual organization. Here it is, man. Have a ball, right? Poke around. And they're like, oh, this site is all about visual organization. Great. Bookmark it. Save it. Keep it. Come back to it. This is what I was showing in that uh, Yahoo Answers redesign earlier, where uh, the way you actually get to this page from search, fondant frosting, we pull out related questions from the index of the billions of questions that are in answers and um, highlight them, pull them up. Um, another thing, what if somebody's coming from like a social networking site like Dig or Delicious or something like that? Maybe leveraging that context is something that's valuable. So can I, hey, here's some other stuff on my site that's been popular on Dig. Maybe you want to play around with that. Or if someone's coming from a feed reader, maybe I can um, call out some stuff um, relevant to subscriptions or something. Or if someone's coming from a communication channel, like an online email client, maybe I can put a real prominent link to action to email this to their friend or something like that. There's, I think, a whole slew of possibilities open up when you start thinking about what was the thing people saw before they came to my site, to my content page, and how can I change my content page to leverage that? So in terms of context, utilizing the minimum amount necessary to set context, treating it as a first impression to build quality, credibility, and then changing the page based on the different situations that people are coming from. So when I think about these things all together, um, you know, I think about where are we spending our time. If 95% of the people coming to our pieces of content are coming from outside the channel that is defined as our site or our application, I think that's a time to start, uh, that's a place to start investing some design energy and some resources, right? And how can you do that? You can think about making good on the promises through links, devoted real estate, hierarchy, scannability, things like that. You can think about appropriate calls to action presented properly without too many choices. And you can think about um, leveraging context to let people know where they are, why they should trust that area, and then somehow modifying those content experiences based off of the situation that brought people there in the first place. So that's what I have on that. Um, 
you probably got a blank bookmark in your bag. There's the code that gives you some money off that book. And uh, anybody has any questions, you can drop me a note or uh, check out the blog. And I think I have two, three minutes for questions. Nope, I don't have any minutes for questions. We'll take it to the discussion lab. We'll go across the hall. Okay, so, to the thanks. hall. Thank you.